Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. If you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 5 this morning in the middle of our 40 days of prayer now, well into it. This should be week 4 that we're uh, starting today. We're looking at the model prayer, the disciples' prayer. Some people call this the Lord's Prayer. This, while he's giving this prayer, I think really the Lord's Prayer is better understood to see uh, in John 17. You get to see the heart of Jesus as he prays. Here he's teaching his disciples how to pray. But I wonder if you have ever been caught off guard at a gathering and somebody knows you're the Christian in the room and they would all feel bad if someone didn't pray. So you get looked at and say, hey, why don't you pray? You ever had that happen in a public setting? I remember growing up as a kid, uh, my dad would call on men in the church to pray at the end. And I don't know if those things were ever prearranged or if he just knew who to call on. But I remember even as a kid being deathly afraid he was going to call on me. In fact, it would happen at the dinner table. I had a 50-50 shot of being the one called on to pray by my dad. Um, it was either me or my brother. And, you know, he'd call on me and I'd say, you know, Dad, I prayed last night. Boy, talk to the Lord. You know, he didn't say that. But you always kind of knew that. Uh, and if I, if I could go back and recalculate all the times, I'm pretty sure I prayed about 80% of the time around the dinner table. Um, but... Uh, I was always hoping he'd call on my brother instead. There's a level of privacy to our prayer time. Praying in public scares most people. I don't know why, but, you know, I go over to your house or go out to eat or we're in a social gathering of sorts, and when it's time to pray because nobody wants a stomachache, everybody looks to the preacher. You're the preacher. you got to pray. You know, I want you to know that Jesus taught you how to pray, and I want you to have an effective prayer life. I want you to... to to know God in prayer. I want you to get to know him through his word and as you spend time with him in prayer because what happens is as you pray, so you believe. And if you're not spending time in prayer, it reveals that you have a desperate need to trust God more. Your prayer life discloses much about what you believe about God and how much you trust him. So there is this moment when Jesus is giving the greatest sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, we find in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, where he teaches his disciples how to pray. And right in the middle of the sermon, he, do, he, he says this, he teaches this. So if you would stand with me as I read. Normally, you'll know I pray after I read the scripture, but I'm just going to let this prayer stand as our prayer together today, okay? Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord for you today. In Jesus' name, we pray that. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So quickly, to set the context of the Sermon on the Mount, it is what we call a big word, inaugurated eschatology. Don't worry about writing that down. It just simply means the study of end times, the last things. What it means is that the kingdom of God was inaugurated when on earth through the ministry of Jesus Christ when he came the first time. But it's not going to be completed until he returns at the second coming. Right? That's what we say already, but not yet. It's a reality now, but it's not yet fully realized until Christ comes back. The Sermon on the Mount conveys the goal or the ideal for disciples, especially the ones he's talking to in Matthew 6, but even for us today in the here and now. As Christians, we are to strive, we are to run the race, and I think this is, a, this is our, our, our map to run the race, if you will. We will not be fully characterized by all of the righteousness that we see in the Sermon on the Mount until the return of Christ, until he makes it all Complete. So this is the already but not yet. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we look at the prayer that Jesus uses to teach his disciples, I want to give you some reasons why prayer doesn't seem to work. Maybe you'd have your own reasons, but these, these are my reasons and, and several other uh, maybe thrown in there. Prayer might be like, to you, might be like the old Aggie. So winter Texans, I'm sorry, you may not get the context of what an Aggie is, but it's a school here in Texas uh, where we Aggies, and I are one, we, we get a bad rap for being a little slow sometimes, a little goofy, and Aggie jokes are the best. Anyway, so there was an, an old Aggie that went to the hardware store and bought him a chainsaw. He needed to, to get some wood taken care of, and it didn't happen the way he thought it would. He stormed back into that hardware store and slammed that that chainsaw on the counter and demanded to see the store manager. Well, the manager came up and from the back of the store and he found that old Aggie red in the face and pouring sweat. Looked like he'd been through it. He'd had a hard time, a hard day. And that old chainsaw, he looked at it and it was just beat up as could be, bent in places it shouldn't have been bent. Paint was chipped off the, the siding of it. The chainsaw chain itself, the teeth are all discombobulated, all sorts of different things are happening there. It was a big mess. And that old laggy looked at that store manager and he said, sir, I've been trying to cut wood with this chainsaw all day long and I've got nothing to show for it. I haven't even been able to cut a, a handful of firewood yet. And the manager, trying hard to remain cooperative as it is when you have an angry customer, it can be difficult. He assured him that He'd be more than willing to take a look at that chainsaw to see what the problem was. And upon closer examination, he too saw that it was a mangled mess, for sure trying to see how to start it, not sure if this would even be a, worth his time, but perhaps just a waste of time. But not knowing exactly where to start, he figured he'd start at the beginning and 
he pulled that ripcord. Sure enough, after a few coughs and sputters and some adjustment on the choke, that motor started right up. A smile of accomplishment on his face. He looked at that old Aggie who was no longer red in the face but white in the face and a puzzled look on his face. And he said, so that's what that string is for? <laughs> yeah. Before you give up on praying, ask yourself how you've been trying to use it. Have you been trying to pray according to the scriptures? We have a great book, uh, a help out in the welcome area that you could take home with you today. Praying the Scriptures, it's an excellent resource, help you pray through the Psalms. My next question would be, what is your expectation of prayer? Why are you praying? Is prayer supposed to work at all, right? You've prayed for something, maybe for someone to get well or healed and they didn't survive that illness. Right? We know that God answers prayer. We can read scripture and see that he answers prayer like, he, like people were requesting in scripture. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. But when we think about prayer, is, is, is it simply to have our request granted? No, that's not the primary goal of prayer. When we say, my prayer was answered, what, what are we saying? Are we saying that God has done exactly as we asked? And if he doesn't do what we, exactly what we asked, meaning he answered it in a different way, or if he didn't do exactly the way we demand of him, then we would say God didn't answer our prayers. Is it the answer that we're after? Because sometimes his answer is no answer, it's silence. And if God has not been speaking, if God is silent, stay in the silence and do the last thing he told you to do. That's some of the best advice I ever was given. God's not speaking. Have you done what he told you to do last time? No. Go do it. Wait for the next word. Prayer isn't taking our wish list to God, right? Trying to manipulate or bargain shop with God. I'll do A, Lord, if you'll do B and C and D and the rest of my list. It's not alerting God to our needs like a news broadcast. We just read he already knows. Dr. Ken Hemphill offered three reasons why prayer may not work. One is, well, we don't pray. Simple enough. Two, the phony prayer, which we find in the hypocrite. And then the frivolous prayer, the meaningless repetition, which we find in the Gentiles that Jesus mentioned. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the big reason we must pray is actually connected back to the beginning of the sermon in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. When he says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's a tremendous focus in the Sermon on the Mount on the concept of dependency. Dependency upon God. The poverty of spirit builds a connection for us, his people, to depend on him. And we hear that in this prayer. That ought to be a large correction, a massive correction for us who live in a society that prides itself on self-esteem and independence. I don't know who said this, but I wrote it down. It was in quotes, so i got to keep it in quotes. It's not original with me. It just simply said this. I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know the heart of a good man is terrible. The poor in spirit 
The man or the woman who is poor in spirit recognizes their need for God's help. Those who have a humble heart are those who depend upon God. Those who go to him in spiritual bankruptcy, now we're getting somewhere. Spiritual bankruptcy, because the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. So Jesus says in verse five, and when you pray, he's assuming that you will pray. He's assuming that you are praying. It was common practice back in his day for those Jews to pray daily, multiple times, especially at the synagogue or the temple. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. And when you pray, so if your problem is you don't pray, well, the solution's pretty simple. Start praying. I don't know what to pray. Great. You've got the model of prayer right in front of you. The Jews had their regular times to pray. So many of the other world religions have the same kind of scheduled time. But Jesus is drawing an, an attention to what? He's drawing our attention to the hypocrite. Oh, we love that bunch, don't we? We always get lumped in with them anyway, so let's see what they're up to. We like to point out their faults, right? Well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. When you do pray, Jesus said, don't be like them. He's directing your attention away from the man that's on the street corner, the one who's up in the synagogue, standing for all to see him and all to hear him. Rather, he's asking us to focus on the man's heart. What is his motive? His motive is to be heard. His motive is to be seen. His motive is to be recognized by all the people that are listening. What is your prayer motivation? Where is your heart in that? Then you see the phony prayer, the, the hypocrite. He's offering a phony prayer. He's there to be seen by everyone and being praised by them for his or her efforts. Jesus called his disciples on this day to vigilance in their prayer life. He would do it again when he's in the garden. Stay awake, stay alert. And they would fall asleep. This is a great concern for Jesus. Pay attention to what you're saying. Let it pour out of your heart. Listen, if you love Jesus, you're, just, you're gonna be telling him about it. Then you got the pretend prayer, the hypocrite. He's playing a role. That word hypocrite in that original language, a sweet original language, he's an actor. He's playing a part that's not really him. Just like we have today, actors, actresses, it's the same thing. They're playing a role on the screen in the movie. That's not really who that person is. Tom Cruise is a pilot, but he don't fly like that in real life. Luke Skywalker's a pretty cool character, but Mark Hamill's not Luke Skywalker. Playing a part. Their actions are there to draw attention to themselves so that they appear pious. The imagery that Jesus gives his disciples here is quite vivid. It pictures a pretender standing on the street corner like right in front of the synagogue, right where the major thoroughfare, because nobody was driving back then. They're all walking on foot. So he's out on the street corner praying this grandiose prayer so everyone would look at him and say, ooh, how pious he must be. Ooh, listen to his prayer. He's so nice. Oh, yes. Oh, and then he's done. Oh, what a lovely prayer. Yes, indeed. You should write a book. Yeah, sell it on Amazon. Yes, But we're not to use prayer to get attention. 
Because the reality is, is we use that vertical relationship with God to, in, to, to impress the horizontal relationship with people, we have certainly crossed the line, and that's what the hypocrite was doing. So Jesus says, don't pray like that. Then you've got the wordy prayer. Is that like the wordy preacher? Kind of. Frivolous, meaningless. This guy thinks, this hypocrite, that's a little bit further down, this hypocrite thinks that he's going to be heard for his many words. But there's no intent behind them. There's nothing really behind them. That wordy prayer is going on and on and on with little content. Lots of words, all fluff, no meat. They're saying the same thing over and over. Here's how that would play out. They were thinking that if they could repeat the name of their God enough or use some kind of magical language, then at some point they would get their God's attention for their many words. This is the Gentiles. They would run down that long list of names that's been said and trying to find the right one and maybe if they could just get the right formula or even the right name of God, then, then he, would, he would do what they would ask and they then would be able to manipulate him or her. I always kind of thought that was what was happening when we would pray the Lord's Prayer as if the team praying the Lord's Prayer is somehow invoking victory just by saying the Lord's Prayer, right? Never quite understood that. Trying to force God's hand of favor upon them with some kind of magic formula, abracadabra. Jesus says both of, both of these type of hypocrites will have their reward in full. It's not authentic. It's not about the heart. It's all for show. But prayer is never about impressing anyone. Prayer is led by a humble and contrite heart. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives an example. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he gives an example of two different men who were praying in the synagogue, in the temple that day. You got the Pharisee and the tax collector. He says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, <clears throat> standing by himself, prayed thus. Oh God, I thank you. I am not like all of these other men, these sinners. The drunkard, the unjust, the extortioners, the adulterers, <clears throat> or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then you got the tax collector, the one he was talking about, standing over by himself. Scripture says, standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus summed it up by saying this, I tell you, this man the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Prayer is about the quality of the heart, not the quantity of our words. A failure to pray. Also, a 
failure to go to the Lord is a sign of an anemic spiritual life. And a church that will not pray is a church that will not stay. A lack of a prayer life in the church is a sure sign of an anemic church. So here's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Look at verses 9 and 10. Having built the case for what prayer is not, don't pray like this. Rather, verse 9, you, the you is understood, he's talking to his disciples, you pray then like this. Prayer begins with the Father, always. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice there is no I in this prayer, but rather it says our Father. Jesus is always teaching his disciples about their relationship with God, the Father. He made that appeal to his disciples to point us even still today to an appreciation of God as our Father. This is a prayer that only the believer can pray. If you are not in Christ, God is not your Father. Those who are not saved do not call upon God as Father. They've yet to be adopted in and through the blood of Christ into the family of God. This is a prayer for the church. Now, if I just described you and you're not in Christ, there is no better day than today to know the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Those sins will be wiped out and forgiven because Christ is, just as we observed this morning, given his body and his blood to bring new life into you. But let's look at this. Our Father, our Father who is God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, cares deeply for his people. That word our, of course, it stresses the community of the church, that communal aspect of the church. We are the ecclesia, called out. That's what that means, the called out ones. We are called out by the Father. Father stresses that unique and intimate relationship. That may be a hard word for you because your earthly father was a scoundrel. Please don't put the way your earthly father was upon your heavenly father because your heavenly father is perfect in every way. Your heavenly father is going to be the one who wipes the tears from your eye when you get to heaven. Where is he? In Christ, we are adopted and share in the sonship with him. He is our father, but where is our father? He's in heaven. Hey, if you're in real estate, what's it all about? Location, location. All right, some of you are still awake. Preacher was about prayer. I was praying. Yeah, gotcha. He's in heaven. What a glorious thing to think and, and to, what a truth to believe. Our Father is in heaven. He is not a statue. He's not a rock. He's not a tree. And he's not out in the sea. He is in heaven. The God who is listening to your prayer, your Father is in heaven. Not only do we gain a perspective on his location, but it also helps us to grasp his sovereignty, his authority, that the almighty God who dwells in majesty and power, the one who spoke everything into existence out of nothing, cares deeply for our needs. The second request 
that Jesus prays is, hallowed be your name. May your name be kept sacred. It's not a request. I mean, it is a request. It's not a song or a reference to worship here. He's not saying, like, when we sing holy, 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 that's a song of worship. We sing about God's holiness. That's not what he's doing here. It is a request that God's name be kept as holy. Lord, we honor your name as holy. Be sanctified. Be set apart. You already are those things. So what are we praying? We're praying, Lord, we need your help so as to honor your name. We need your help because we want to honor you in the here and now. Your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. Help us to make your name holy and for your name to be known as holy across the earth. Lord, protect your name from being profaned by false teaching, false doctrine, unholy living. Lord, make your holiness known throughout the world and and help us to honor your name in every single thing that we do. So our stresses community. Father stresses relationship. Who is in heaven stresses his location and his authority. Hallowed be your name stresses his holiness. We move forward in verse 10 that his will becomes our concern. His will becomes our focus. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As you pray, Especially as you pray scripture, his concerns become yours. But wait a minute, I thought we were to take our prayer list to him. We go give him all of our concerns. That's coming. But prayer, first and foremost, is about his concern and his will. And as his concern and will becomes our concern, our focus, there grows within us a sense of commitment to participating and obeying his will. His kingdom initiatives, his plan for the church, which we know is the great commandment. One, what is that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Pretty good. All right. The first service, it was like, I heard them all, but it was all in different, different, y'all nailed it. And then you've got the Great Commission. As you go, make disciples, baptizing, teaching in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All lived out through Acts 1.8. That you will be my witnesses. That as we go out, we are his witnesses. His will becomes our concern. Now what about the kingdom of God? Essentially, the kingdom of God is his reign and his rule over his people. Again, there is that already but not yet aspect of this. It's looking forward to the final day when Christ returns and that is finally and completely honored and established. There are some out there that will teach that that's the church's job to set up the the kingdom of God on earth. So much to a point that Jesus wouldn't need to return and doesn't have to return because the church is going to accomplish it. That's That's somebody that don't read their Bible. If you're listening to that, you need to stop. God is going to set it up. Our job as the church is the great commandment, the great commission. That's what we are called to do. Love God, love others, and make disciples. But in the daily life, the already part of God's kingdom is a reality. As he reigns in our life, he rules in our life. 
He transforms our hearts, which leads us to obedience. His will becomes our concern. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom will come, and it's not going to come through moral reform or social justice or political action or cultural influence. It won't happen that way. He's going to come when the Father says for him to come, and not a moment sooner and not a moment late. Al Mohler said it this way. He said, when God's people preach God's word coupled with God's spirit, it produces life and obedience. God's word, God's spirit changes the hearts of sinners such that they are rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son, end quote. So we're looking to the future that his kingdom will be finalized and completed, consummated. It's going to happen, but it's a reality now in the church because he rules and reigns over his people and in his people. So when do we see the kingdom of God come? We see it come when we see a sinner brought to life by the blood of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So when a sinner comes home, the kingdom of God, we see it. Partially. Partially. What a moment that is. So when the people of God living out his will, when his will becomes our concern, when that happens, the kingdom of God happens by hearing his people proclaim the king of kings. We see it, just a glimpse, just a glimpse as Christ now rules and reigns over that sinner's life. His will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that his sovereign will? Well, his sovereign will is gonna be done anyway. So I think Jesus is referring to his revealed will, which is his word. It's not some new book that you find out there. That's not where God's will is. It's in his word. It's final and complete from beginning to end. His word is all here. And so what Jesus is leading us to do is asking, he's asking, telling us to ask. We're asking God to reshape our hearts to a place where he is obeyed, where he is glorified in our lives. Here's the kicker. What we're asking is this. God, may all the other kingdoms in my life fall away and fall into oblivion and let yours be the only one. The reign of Christ in your life is of a one true king. That king demands allegiance. He will disrupt your routine. He will disrupt the order of your lives. He will call you to abandon pursuits that you thought were, were, were part of your future so that you can pursue his. Little did the disciples really know what they were praying when they said, come follow me. When Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they dropped their nets and followed him. Three years later, Pentecost. And the church. Mm. Luther said of this line, he said, Lord, I want you to conquer me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, conquer me. Then we move into verse 11 where we find that his provision is what we need. Give us this day our daily bread. Here's where we bring our needs to him. It goes back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. God has created us as dependent beings on him. And from the moment we are born, we are dependent on someone for nourishment, for kindness, um, to clean up our messes, to meet our needs. 
We are in total dependence upon him. Give us this day our daily bread. When we look to God in this moment, we remember. We remember that in the Old Testament, he was called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider. We can look back into the Exodus and see there the daily manna that God provided his people as they wandered through the desert. Water from the rock, we understand that in those moments, that's who God is when we look to him for our provision. And the rest of chapter 6 is really an extension of that where he calls us to not be anxious for tomorrow, for today has enough trouble about itself. Don't worry about all of these things because you know your heavenly father. He sees, he knows everything you need. Instead, what are we supposed to do? Seek first the kingdom of God. Daily, when he says daily, obviously it means day to day. We rely on his provision day to day. It's not looking off into the distant future, but what it is today. Verse 12, we find that his forgiveness is extended as we pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus identified for us our deepest and actually our most urgent spiritual problem. Nothing less than rebellion against him, which is called sin. Yet here is this holy God who's hallowed, who is in heaven, that has extended grace and forgiveness to the sinner in and through Jesus. And in turn, as we pray, forgive us our debts, we extend that same forgiveness to those who have stung us and hurt us. Friend, I I want you to relish the pardon and the mercy and the grace of God. This is the gospel that in Christ, those sins, those debts are paid. Here we have the one who is injured, willing to forgive the hurt caused by another. Listen, no one in this fellowship is a mind reader. I haven't found them yet. Some of you think I am, but I'm not. I confess. If I offend you, please come tell me so we can work that out. We can extend forgiveness to one another. Because when the church is extending forgiveness to one another... We're healthy. We will be healthy. When we harbor hurt, we nurture that bitterness, it'll only take root and it shows a lack of maturity. Don't let it. Even perhaps more than important is that you're going to miss the one thing that'll fix it. I mean, unless you just want to walk around miserable all the time, which is, well, you can, you can take it. You can have it. Because the one thing that will fix it is forgiveness. We extend that to one another. And here's how you know. How you know you've forgiven is when you stop telling other people what they did to you. If you will relish the very pardon of God, then you'll be so glad to extend that pardon to someone else. So here we are, praying that God would release us from the burden of consequences of our sin, release us from the debt that we owe. Having been forgiven of my sin, now I turn and extend that to others. We find in verse 13, the final statement about his protection and direction. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a two-part ending here, whereby we receive God's protection and his direction. There's a spiritual battle. We sing about it this morning. I, on my knees, with my hands lifted high. 
in the heart of the tax collector, not the heart of the Pharisee. Remember. In that spiritual battle, we recognize that sin and temptation is still around, and it will be around until Jesus comes back. Temptation is not the sin, but it leads to sin, and it's a daily struggle. And if you think, no, it's not, then you're kidding yourself. But it's a daily struggle, and it's a threat to our communion with God. It'll interrupt you faster than anything. And we seek release from the power and the corruption of sin as we follow Jesus. I'm not praying that I can do this on my own. But we're praying, I can't do this on my own. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I need protection. I need spiritual protection. When we pray, don't lead us in temptation, it's a cry of need. Keep us from a time of testing. Deliver us from the evil one, for he is the one who seeks to destroy the church. Listen, these are words of desperation. These are words that cry out our powerlessness, not self-sufficiency. We're not saying, Lord, give me the willpower to resist. He's teaching you to seek after the shepherd and his deliverance. If you're following the shepherd, you're not going to go off course. He is going to guide you. Remember what David sang? His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He's leading, protecting, guiding, directing. He is our shepherd and our savior. There's nothing here of me or of you. Friend, God does this all. Just meet, just meet God halfway. It's baloney. He is our deliverer. He is the one we turn to. He is the Savior, and we are the saved. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who've come to the end of themselves. For yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever, which is a really long time, and ever. Amen. Let's pray.